Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What's back to my old introduction style, my podcast host who's out of ideas? Uh, I'm Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards, uh, the podcast where we talk about terrible people, and more importantly, I completely botch the introduction every time, and after a hundred some odd podcasts, I shouldn't be doing that anymore, but I'm, I'm not a professional, I am a hack and a fraud. But you know who isn't a hack and a fraud? Shireen Lana Yunus! Airhorn, Airhorn, Airhorn. I've you never, doing, I've, I've never felt more like a hack and a fraud than I am when I'm on this podcast. <laughs> well, why is that? I don't think I'm smart enough for this. What? No, I am. Well, the point of this podcast is nobody's very smart, or none of these people would be getting away with all the shit they get away with. True, 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 true. No, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to know what thank you fucker is back. out there fucking up the world. Well, Shireen, I'll tell you who we're talking about today. Okay. But I want to ask a question of you first. Okay. What yeah. in your mind qualifies someone as a ladies' man? A ladies' man? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, someone that's like a charismatic, smooth talker, you know? Maybe uh-huh, gets uh-huh. away with a lot of like uh, things that um, a less capable person would get away with. Um, yeah. That's an, that's, that, who's, that's who's a really popular, interesting who's, one. Who's, who, he's popular, but um, uh, I don't know. Like you know, like if someone's a creep and they're good looking, you give them a pass because they're good looking. Like not like you, but like yes. I'm just saying, like the general society. I kind of think of that as like a ladies' man. <laughs> but also, you can be a good kind of ladies' man and be nice to ladies um, and it treat is, them yeah. well. 
right? It is a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've known some guys that I would I would describe as ladies' men who were very respectful. Yeah. And I've known some guys who are ladies' men who are like absolute sociopaths. Like, right. it's... Yeah. But it always is one or t- of the two. They're either like the best person you know, and mm-hmm. they're just incredibly charming because they're really decent people, or they're utter like soulless monsters. Yeah, <laughs> there I think there's definitely a middle ground. There's definitely a dichotomy there where there's like one side where they're like charismatic, the life of the party, everyone is like attracted to them like a magnet, and the other side where it's like a dark brooding. They just get all the girls because they're just like yeah, rude. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, today, Shireen, we are talking about the quintessential ladies' man, one okay. of the men, in fact, for whom that term was coined. Wow. And the guy we're talking about today is also the inventor of the concept of fascism. Oh! <laughs> That's a nice little blend of attributes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, this, is, this is a hell of a tale. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious for a woman's perspective on... Um, this guy's i don't fully understand this guy's appeal but it was okay. undeniable like in okay. his lifetime but i find him baffling um so maybe you can help me make sense of this i will try my best have you ever heard of gabrielle d'annunzio nope all right well neither had i really until i i started digging into him a little bit back so so he's not very well known today outside of Italy, mm-hmm. um, but he is an, an important figure. So uh, Gabriel D'Annunzio was born on March 12th, 1863 in the city of Pescara, Italy. Uh, now, the nation of Italy itself was only about two years old when he was born um, because it had just, you know, like after the Roman Empire fell, it had mostly been a collection of city-states and big chunks of it had been ruled by other countries and kingdoms and shit. So mm-hmm. like Italy had just started being a thing like in the modern sense, when this guy's born. Um, And Pescara, his hometown, uh, was a small coastal city buttressed by mountains and pine trees. It was not a particularly, like, hustle and bustle-y place, and Gabriel's father, uh, Francisco Paolo, was the mayor. Today, we'd probably consider Gabriel's family to have been upper-middle class. Um, His dad was a small-time landowner and a wine merchant with a terrible habit of spending much more money than he could actually afford. So they made a good living, but they were always kind of, like, on the edge of their means, now, as the biggest man in town, because uh, Francisco Paolo was, you know, the mayor, uh, he needed to be seen displaying conspicuous wealth. So some of Gabriel's earliest memories during Carnival were of his father standing on the balcony and tossing gold and silver coins down into a crowd of partying poor people, which oh. was like not just his dad did that in any town, the guy who occupies his position. That's like a tradition. Okay. That's how you show off your largesse, right? Okay. Um, so he was like a be able good to, like, guy. He was perceived no. as... No. No. Well, I mean, I think he was very popular in town. Yes, he was perceived as a good guy, but this was also like what you do if you're if you're okay. the mayor. Okay. If you're the richest man in town, you throw money into crowds on carnival. It's just what happens. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds There's like a worse fun time. traditions. Yeah. 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 I prefer other forms of income redistribution, but that one's <laughs> but not the worst. Throwing money at me, that can work, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's better than what we have now, where they don't do that at all. Yeah. And just hoard it all. Yeah. So I, I can guess imagine you could say that. I can imagine like a. If that happened now, it would be, like, very riotous. Like, just clamoring for that $1 or, like, whatever scent is on the ground. If you really let me, you know, because times are rough. Times are rough. I I do think if, like, I wonder, because, like, I think part of why so many rich people are are against both Warren and and, uh, Sanders, who both have wealth redistribution platforms, 
um, is that they uh, like they and they while they're in favor of like charity and stuff. Is mm-hmm. number one they spend less money on charity, but number two, like then it's them. Then everybody gets to see like, oh, this this great rich person bought this hospital, as opposed to like, well, this guy paid his taxes. Right. Like one of those feeds your ego more. Maybe for like, look, you have to give up X amount of money, but you can toss it into a crowd of partying people. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's yeah. let's compromise. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good. Um, that's a good question. There, I mean, yeah. yeah. So know. Francisco Paulo, like, you know, Gabriel's dad, he grows up like seeing him doing all this stuff. He's, it's very ostentatious mm-hmm. and displays of wealth are a big part of his childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, his dad also had a hobby of dyeing doves in a variety of colors using like new high tech dyes at the time hmm. uh, and letting them fly around inside the house, which is weird. That's, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting hobby. They didn't have TV or radio. So, you know, they had to entertain themselves by. Yeah. Torturing animals is about yeah. all you got. Wow. <laughs> That's quite the quite the activity. I don't want to keep like leading back to my pro dog fighting agenda, but you know, in a time with less entertainment. You you have a pro dog fighting agenda? I've been out of the loop. I'm Some sorry. dog fights. Oh, okay. okay. Some dog legal dog no, I'm I'm let's, I'm but let's a never horrible, talk about horrible this. Joke. <laughs> So as a young boy, Gabriel was the beloved center of his family's world. He had a brother and three sisters, but Gabriel's family immediately recognized that he was special and treated him that way. And generally, when we say someone was a child genius on this podcast, we're repeating the lies of a narcissist. Um, yeah. This is not the case with Gabriel. Okay. Basically, everyone who's ever covered this guy, ever written about him, agrees that he was like everyone kind of knew he was a genius from Whoa. a very early age. Um, his most prominent biographer, Lucy Hughes Hallett, uh, absolutely despises him and thinks he was a monster, but repeatedly emphasizes that just everyone who knew him as a kid recognized that this, this kid's brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he's not exa- lying about that. Um, now, Gabriel was a mama's boy, later writing of his mother that her glances made my heaven. He was surrounded by women from an early age, maids, sisters, and aunts, and his grandmother. He was the center of their world, and he in turn learned how to manipulate and to please women. Um, Ladies, his adoring man. female. Yeah, exactly. That is something like all the guys I know who who I would describe that way. Most of them um, grew up with like either a single mom or like, a, but like like usually they grew up raised primarily by women. I think they um, they definitely have to have a female influence so they can understand yeah. how female how a female brain can work. Uh, not that yeah. it works so different, radically different, but it does in some certain like circumstances with like intimacy and bonding. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean it's kind of like it's just like you grow up like wanting because they're like the center of your world, mm-hmm. like really wanting to please the women around you, and then yeah. as you go out into the world, that remains like one of the centers of your your being. Yeah, um, and, and I do think that's sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry, I, no, I just keep just saying the- yeah and agreeing, and then it sounds like I'm about to say something more, but I have nothing profound to say. But I will say uh, that. I think having being raised around women and understanding women in the real world that leads you to almost like speak their language and you're able to like establish yeah. a bond with someone like immediately better than like someone else that's not like that doesn't have sisters that wasn't raised by a single mom because there's already like this understanding there and I think that gets you in their bubble you know yeah. you break that barrier so much easier because if you raise mostly around men like I was, you 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 grow up starting every conversation with just a series of fistfights, and and that that only works in certain situations. Yeah, it's very helpful at like the Taco Bell, but outside of that, <laughs> the Taco Bell really, so you're good. gonna get into a fistfight oh, yeah. at Taco Bell. I, I can navigate a Taco Bell <laughs> like nobody else. It's just a bunch of right crosses, but um, yeah, yeah, good to anyway. know. Good to know. <laughs> 
So uh, Pescara, the city he was born in, um, is located in a region of Italy called the Abruzzi. Um, and there was vanishing, and it, it was kind of like a rural area, so there was vanishingly little to do there outside of religion. And basically any monuments around him were either churches or these perilously carved caves that had once been occupied by monks and been turned into like sites of worship. Mm-hmm. Um, and faith there was a mix of extremely strict Catholicism and ancient Italian pagan traditions like fortune telling, palm reading and other manners of like what we'd call witchcraft. Um, one of Gabrielle's earliest memories was being taken in by an aunt of his who was a, uh, a, a not a monk, a, um, a nun um, into a part of the convent where males were not allowed to go and then breathlessly watching her perform like a pagan fortune-telling ritual. Um, So he grows up both with this intense, like, ritualistic pagan influence in his life and also with a lot of his earliest memories being, because he's seen a special, taken into places he's not allowed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are both kind of, like... You can see, like, the kind of person that makes, like, this idea that, like, the rules don't apply to me. Like, I'm not bound by the same things as everyone else. And then the world proves him right by letting him, like... Yes. Go into places he's not allowed. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Absolutely proves yeah. it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, Gabriel was never religious uh, and nursed all of his life a deep contempt for priests, but he also grew up with an abiding love of ritual and the trappings of faith, if not any actual like belief in faith. Mm-hmm. Um, he would later write of himself, uh, quote, I come from an ancient breed. My ancestors were anchorites in the Maya. Uh, they flagellated themselves till the blood came. They throttled wolves. They stripped eagles of their feathers and they scratched their seals on giant giant rocks with a nail Helen took from the cross. So, damn. A lot of pagan influence yeah. here, you could say. Now, Gabriel D'Annunzio was an infamous liar, but the books and stories he published later in his life give us deep insight into the sort of things he would have experienced as a boy in Pescara, because writers write what they know. So I'm going to quote now from the biography of Gabriel uh, D'Annunzio, titled Gabriel D'Annunzio, Poet, Seducer, and Preacher of War, hmm. by Lucy Hughes Hallett. Uh, and this is a quote from that biography about one of his early books. Quote, in D'Annunzio's first story, set in or around Pescara, he conjures up a place where the bustle of port and barracks and market are contrasted with the frustration of women confined to small dark rooms who watch the life of the street through chinked shutters or small high windows. The church bell clangs out the hours. Priests pass in the streets carrying extreme unction to the dying. Young people, strictly segregated as a rule, furtively press up against each other in the merciful darkness when the church lamps are extinguished in Holy Week to mark Christ's passion. Funerals, the bier followed by a long lines of hooded mourners, their faces covered all by but a slit for the eyes, or processions of girls in sacrificial white on the way to their first communion, provide the town's main spectacles. Many of the stories D'Annunzio related about his childhood concerned dying animals. There was the death of his little Sardinian horse, a bay with a white muzzle named Aquilino, uh, whom he would feed with apples and sugar lumps in the peace of the nighttime stable. There was the quail the farm manager gave him in a cage made of twigs. Half a century later, D'Annunzio could still recall how the tiny creature had dashed itself against its makeshift bars, gashing its head until the bone showed. On killing days, the howling of stuck pigs and their blood spurting into basins so appalled him that he would hide in a corner, face to the wall, his hand over his contorted mouth. Life scared me as though it stalked me with a pig-sticking knife in hand. After the massacre, he sobbed all night. So that's, that's a little insight into his childhood. Fuck. That he's, he's not a bad writer. <laughs> no, that's wait. That's he wrote that about himself. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's like a lot of the, that included a lot of quotes from him. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. That's. I mean, he he's called a poet and a seducer is what I uh, remember yeah, from your description. Yeah, that's the biography title. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's very poetic. That's a very graphic way to describe 
everything. The bone and the fuck. Jesus Christ. What an intense, yeah. what an intense uh, life. One of the things Lucy Hughes Hallett, his biographer, emphasizes is that he was really, his writing had a real visceral quality, um, just in the way he, like, both in the way he described bodies and, like, his romance mm-hmm. books and, like, in the way he, like, wrote about, like, it was, there's a lot of blood, a lot of, uh, a lot of, like, he was one of those, like, shove your hands into the meat kind of writers. Right. Um, which is part of why he, he had such an impact on people, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, anyway, uh, back to Gabriel. Uh, he'd almost been choked by his call while he was being born. Uh, and because people are dumb, this was the focus of much superstition. Babies mm. born this way in Italy were believed to have the second sight, and the call itself was supposed to protect the person from drowning. Uh, now, the call, if you aren't aware, is the amniotic membrane that surrounds a fetus. Gabriel's parents dried his and put it in a little silk bag, which they hung around his neck for his entire childhood. So that's cool. That's so fascinating because if he was yeah. already born with this idea that like this child is second sight, this child is special, like how much of it is nature versus nurture? Like how much of it was like, I know I'm special because everyone's telling me I'm special yeah. and how much of it is like you have a genius brain and it just so happens that everyone already knew that about you. <laughs> like, like that's so fascinating. How much of yeah. it was him living to the standard that everyone had of him and how much of it was just like actual intelligence i don't know his his whole story has convinced me that my idea towards how you should raise a child is correct which is when they're five you put them out in the woods with a knife and you just you leave them and if they come back home if they find their way back home you know uh then they get to continue to grow up and if not well you know i don't mean this in a a bad way but i don't want you to have kids anytime soon (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna say if, if someone had done that to gabrielle he's not gonna grow up thinking he's special you know for sure you, you're out in the woods with all the other five-year-olds and you have to form your own society if you're going to get back to to your parents and then, I have a question. And then you learn Does he humility have siblings? yes and like they must have had an awful life i mean not awful but they must have had very much like a complex about themselves with this like special prophet child around them all this time right i I don't i don't know much about how his siblings thought of him he was very charming and you do mm. get the impression that everybody was kind of in love with him when he was so he got away with it he got away with everything Yeah. yeah okay yeah 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 Now, his most significant childhood memory was of one of his sisters showing him a fake pearl, and he was so taken with the object that he immediately started climbing the nearest tree to steal an egg from a bird's nest, because kids are fucking stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, His parents rescued him before he fell down and killed himself, and they freaked out about the whole ordeal. Uh, And I'm going to quote from his biography again. Mm -hmm. His parents were there, his mother trembling, his father pale and threatening to beat him. He was lifted back through the window and laid, faint and shaking, on a bed. In retrospect, he saw them, the mother, father, child, as a secular trinity. His aunts hung over him weeping as the sorrowing Marys wept over the dead Christ. But the family's communion was interrupted. The crowd now gathered in the street, believing the child to be dead, began on the chilling ululations customary at funerals. Gabrielle's father picked him up and carried him, limp and white-faced, back out onto the balcony. The keening turned to shouts of joys. Describing the incident in old age, Denunzio made of this his first balcony appearance a portent he was marked out from childhood so he asserted for a public life so this is his like defining childhood memory is almost dying on a tree and like the whole town turning out because they hear his parents and aunts shouting and yeah and this is based this is he's recounting this from his memory so yes there's a there's an element of like loftiness that's 
Absolutely. in this memory that is he's, he yeah. was a child there's no way there's every like every time you remember something it becomes distorted so yes by the time he's recounting this i'm sure it's not 100 factual but I, I will say that i went from like having this like christ image of everyone like gathered around him and being sad to like the lion king of like simba yeah. being on like pride rock on this balcony just like lifting up this child being like this will save us um, I think he yeah. sees himself a little bit that way. Yeah, yeah, he definitely sees himself as a Christ-like figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, he was absolutely a narcissist. Like, mm-hmm. there's not a doubt in my mind that this Just the guy way was he, a narcissist. The way he recounts his, his yeah. own memory is very telling of that. Yeah. Now, his school reports from the time describe him as very unbelieving in God. Uh, and as a boy, his favorite books were Paradise Lost and Cain by Byron, both of which were epics about heroes who rebel against God. Mm-hmm. Um, in school, he got in trouble for telling his teachers, who were priests, that if God existed, he was a villain or an imbecile who created mankind to amuse himself by watching us suffer, which is not an unreasonable theory. No, I, f- I f- <laughs> kind of feel the same way a lot of the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can I, I, I get on board with that yeah. one. I feel like if you're at all a thoughtful person, you at least consider that possibility at some point yeah. in your childhood. It's like, no, what the 400%. fuck is going on in this world? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, like, when I was 12, I told my mom I didn't believe in God because I just, like, I thought he was so cruel and just yeah. am- amusing himself by making everyone suffer. And then she started crying, and I was like, oh, I'm too young to be, to speak my mind. I should keep it to myself. But I will say that's a very normal thing for a child to think, especially yes. if he's being raised by God-loving, God-fearing people. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think even if you wind up being very religious, mm-hmm. at some point, if you pay attention to the world, you have to wonder, is 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 if there's like a space guy in charge of all this, is he a fucking lunatic? Yeah. Like, what the hell is happening yeah. up there? Yeah, I, yeah, you, I think that's, he's, he's on the money with yeah. at least that line I of will thought. agree so, with this point so far. You got me there. Yeah. Okay, one now, for you. <laughs> Gabrielle grew up in an exciting time for Italy. Uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi had conquered Sicily in 1860 with just a thousand men, defeating the vastly superior military of the Bourbon monarchy. Uh, King Victor Emmanuel had united Italy as a single polity for the first time since the fall of the Roman Empire. Nationalism was sweeping all throughout Europe in this period, uh, but nowhere was it stronger than Italy. And nowhere in Italy was it stronger than in the heart of young Gabrielle D'Annunzio. So the idea of being Italian, very new at this point. Okay. For most of history, you hadn't. No, nobody would have cared. Like nobody thought of themselves as Italian. You thought of yourself as I'm a Venetian. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a Roman. I'm a, a, a whatever a Florentian or Florentine, whatever yeah. the fuck they call people from Florence. Um, but there was this newfound like nationalism that was like very prideful. Yes. Yeah. And from from an early age, he really identifies with this mm-hmm. as an Italian, and he's kind of one of the very first. Th- like major Italian thinkers in the Italian peninsula to identify as an Italian. Okay. Um, now, when he was 11 years old, uh, Gabriel's parents sent him off to a boarding school, the Sisognini, Sisognini, Jesus. This is like supposed to be my ancestral tongue and I don't know anything about it. So really? I apologize. I did not know that yeah, about you. I, I'm, I, my, my whole family is very Italian. We came in like the 1890s on a oh. boat um, to the to the US. But yeah, they come from like, Transalpine Gaul, like the re- the chunk mm-hmm. of the Alps that's on the Italian side of the peninsula. That's fascinating. Look at you now. Yeah, look at me now. <laughs> um, 
at the time, uh, sending your kid off to this boarding school was like the thing to do for wealthy parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in a modern terms, we would consider this schooling experience to be profoundly abusive. Mm-hmm. One of the school's rules was that new pupils could not return home, not for holidays, not for summer vacations, not for any reason, for their first four years. Whoa. So from age 11 to 15, Gabrielle is just in this school totally isolated from this very loving family that he's grown up in. So he goes from this like very safe, nurturing place where he's like the center of the world mm-hmm. to to a cold boarding school run by priests who show no warmth or emotion or compassion to any of their charges. Yeah, he describes the Sisogneny in Letters Home as a prison. Um, his only escape was a daily walk around the grounds. His wow. letters home to his parents became f- almost fervidly loving and cloying, agonizing over bright memories of his childhood and obsessing over the pain of his absence. Lucy Hughes Hallett, Gabriel's biographer, uh, suspects that this environment caused him to grow a shell that was at least partly responsible for the fact that he grew up into the sociopathist sociopath to everpath sosies. Whoa. Um, that is, yeah. that is a great it's uh, a great line. Um and I, mean, I guess yeah, it, it must completely, have been jarring to yeah. go to a place that you weren't like revered constantly. Yeah. yeah. And I guess it it kind of destroys my thesis that that making children survive alone in the woods for months would uh would stop them from becoming monsters. Well, your theory the is worse. is that you would do that at a young age before they had a chance to think that yes. they were messiahs. But uh you're right, Shireen. My theory is b- bulletproof. My theory of child Your theory rearing. is Thank not. Bu- I won't say it's it. bulletproof. I will say it's fascinating, and I will say to use a condom. Um, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> now, at a certain point, Gabriel seems to have uh, replaced the affection he once expressed for his parents with a love of Italy. At age thirteen, after two years in the Sisogneni, he wrote that he had two missions in life: quote to teach the people to love their country and to hate the enemies of Italy to the death. Um, now I'm obviously not a child development expert, but this does not seem like healthy behavior to me. Um, is a general rule. I think children shouldn't focus on hating the enemies of their country to the death. I no. feel like that's led people in bad directions. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how you make Gabriel's an army. Div- a yeah. Gen- generational is- <laughs> army. <laughs> yes. That's, that's how you make the Nazis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Gabriel's devotion to his nation was not, however, selfless. He seems to have been obsessed with Italy primarily as a vessel to express his own greatness. One of his school reports from the time notes, he is entirely dedicated to making a great name for himself. He signed one of his earliest photographs, a picture that he sent home to his parents with to glory. So, Whoa. yeah. <laughs> All right, now, glory. yeah, any other child probably would have been ribbed mercilessly for this kind of arrogance, but it must be said, Gabriel backed up his words with deeds. He learned to play the violin and the flute and to sing expertly. On holidays, he would translate ancient Greek literature into Italian. He wrote ceaselessly, and when study time ended every evening, he would collect the excess lamp oil from the other boys so he could stay up all night writing. He Hmm. was always at the very top of his class, and at one point, he wrote home to his mother that he was angry he'd been allowed to skip a test because, quote, I am certain I would have taken the first place. At age 16, he could speak and write fluently in Italian, Greek, Latin, English, French, and Spanish. Okay, so, so he's not. He's, he, so my theory about nature nurture. Okay, there's definitely an element of him being intelligent. I yes, won't deny that. He's very that. smart. Yeah, yeah, he's a smart kid. But my, but it is a very interesting idea. Just to, I don't know. Like you can be smart and not a fucking lunatic. Yes, um, and he definitely. I don't know. We'll, we'll 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 tell you where this goes. But before we talk more about Gabriel Denunzio, we're gonna talk about some motherfucking products and a goddamn service or three it's gonna be great okay you ready for this shit serene i'm so fucking ready 
Robert. Roll these ads. Italian Robert that I've just learned. Okay, then I'm going to shut up. Pizza. That's yeah. the, only, the only... It's a me, yeah. Robert. Oh, okay. It's okay. Uh, it's okay to be racist towards Italians. It was a um, Mario reference. <laughs> I guess is Mario our people racist? Have oh, been tied to Mario God. for too long. Wait, Mario is so racist. Yes, incredibly so. But it's fine. I'm, I'm shattered. My little self at playing <laughs> Mario growing up is really sad. Listeners, you couldn't uh, see it, Italians but the light went right. out of Shireen's eyes for a whole thirty seconds. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Let's go to ads. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. 
So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. We're back. All right. I will um, say that I would now, play Yoshi Shireen? a lot of the times in Mario Kart, not Mario. Yoshi was my okay. guy. So, Have you gotten all the anti-Italian bigotry out of your system now, Shireen? I didn't mean it, Robert. Italian Mama Robert. Mia. <laughs> <laughs> Roberto. Can I well, I'm going to shut up. Sorry, I'm, I'm digging yeah. my own grave. I do, like, you should have known I was Italian by, like, the the, the, the frequency with which I gesture with my hands. Um, You're allowed to say that, but I'm not, <laughs> am I? <laughs> no, I think everyone is allowed to recognize that about Italian yeah. people. <laughs> well, they say that about Middle Eastern people, too. We're, we're very, yeah. we're, we're an expressive bunch. Um, well, and, like, yeah. it does, like, Italian, like, actually, Italy's not super far from the Middle East. Like, it's no. just literally across, like, a stream from, from We're cousins. From we're chunk cousins. of the world yes yeah yeah that, there's um, a reason why we were every arab related to my big fat greek wedding we're all the same we're all that yeah. whole region the mediterranean is all the same we all show both our love and hatred with food mm-hmm. um <laughs> very true very true yeah. um so the month he turned 16 uh gabriel's very first poem was published uh, it was an ode to king umberto um, now, uh, Gabriel's father, Francesco Paolo, had it printed and handed out to townsfolk who showed up to take part in the king's birthday celebrations. And normally when someone's dad helps them publish their work, it's a sure sign that that work is no good. But this was not the case with Gabriel. Less than a year later, his father helped him publish his first book of poetry called Primo Vera. Now, right out of the gate, it was clear that Gabriel D'Annunzio was an incredible poet. He sent copies of his book out to several of the greatest Italian poets of the day, and most of them wrote him back um, with, like, very f- positive things to say about his work. And he's, again, he's, again, he's 17 at this point. Wow. Um, yeah, a number of them even invited him into their homes and gave him advice and counsel. Uh, critics raved about his work. The priests at his boarding school considered banning the book because it had powerfully erotic subject matter. Uh, it contained lines like, with trembling agitation, I laid you on the water lilies and kissed you with convulsed lips, crying, you are mine. Like a viper, you writhed and groaned. Um, so, like, the priests are like, this is way too much fucking to allow in mm-hmm. our religious school. But that must but have just end, fueled his, his, his cause. That must well, have just no, been they, like, they, fuck yeah, this is what they, I wanted. They didn't ban the book. Um, they wanted to, but they decided that his use of Italian was so perfect and his verse form was so exquisite that they couldn't ban the book. It was just too well written. Wow. So like, yeah, they decided wow. to allow, cause like, but like, fuck the dude can write. Like, that's how good the, the poem are. That's crazy. That is. Yeah. 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 I mean, especially for the time, it must've been a yes. very revolutionary thing to even write about. Um. Well, you know, yeah. they are Italians, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, this this is like you're you're going like there's always been more of this kind of like acceptance of sort of like this passion. The, the, yeah, 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 it is a very Italian thing. That's true. Um, and I, I can't I'm not going to have a lot of quotes from his poems in here just because like a big part of them is that he was such a good writer in the Italian language. Mm-hmm. So like the translations. Yeah, you lose a lot, I mm-hmm. think. Um, but it's universally recognized that this guy is one of the greatest poets in Italian history. Whoa. And some people will say, including he would say that he was the best Italian writer since Dante. I love um, that you said including him. Like, yeah, he was he was he was sure of that. Most wow. modern like academics will say, no, he was one 
one of a number of people, but he's at a very high level. Like he's, I mean, uh, had a big impact on the language. I just hate that he is so. I mean, it's fine to be confident and know your worth, but to say that you're the best writer since Dante—that's like such a, I don't know, that's fucking yeah. wild. But so he he was yeah. never a victim, or he he never suffered from. Um, criticism of, nepo- syndrome. Of, of nepotism like he even though he had such obvious nepotism in his life like like uh, yeah. a, like advances and and uh, yes. privileges no one ever ca- no one ever saw that as any kind of issue i think his work is just so good mm. that like people are like well fuck like i mean yeah he definitely comes from money his dad mm-hmm. is able to help him but like his work does seem to stand on its own interesting um, okay I don't, I don't i'll give think, you that i'll give you that like like most academics who write about him now, like agree that he was a monster and a piece of shit. But pretty much everyone agrees he was really good at writing poems. Imagine if Hitler was good at painting. Yeah, it, it's weird. You get this mix of dictators like Saddam and Hitler who are like wannabe artists but suck at it, mm-hmm. and then you get guys uh, like Stalin. Like Stalin was a poet in his yeah. youth and was a, a, a really well regarded Georgian poet. Mm-hmm. Um, like he gave it up after a while, but he was like considered to be very good and still is. Um, no, it's, I'm, I'm it's obsessed weird. with poetry. Poetry is so powerful, and I write poetry. I think there's a there's a such a power in using the written word, and it can garner so much attention and, and respect, especially back then, because there yeah. wasn't like the internet. But uh, but yeah, I it's 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 a fascinating thing to in this case to, you have to separate the art from the artist and we, we, we go through it right now with filmmaking like someone makes yeah. a great film then you find out they're a pedophile so it's like yep. it's this balance of like someone can make yep. something so profound and so incredible but also be a complete waste of space <laughs> or like yeah. piece of shit so there's it's still going on now and I think it's just fascinating to, to see it back then as well with poetry I don't know. Yeah, and it's you, to underst- you have to understand what poetry was back then too, because like now there are people like people like poems. Most everybody has at least a couple of poems that they've enjoyed, but it's not like it's not like a huge thing at the center of life for mm-hmm. us back then. Like to be honest, at least the the feeling I get is that like poets at this period, particularly in Europe, kind of occupy the space culturally that like an Instagram or a YouTube star mm-hmm. like occupies now. Like they have these legions of utterly devoted fans yeah. or like a pop star like they, they are like like the, the closest you can like the, the the best poets of the day guys like byron like the closest modern uh like like comparisons would be someone like beyonce like yeah. the, that's the level of of devotion that their fans have to no them. it was like that in the um, middle east too there's this poet yeah. that kind of from similar roots like he came from privilege he was rich his name is uh um, he's Arkabani. He's an amazing poet in the Middle East. He's Syrian from Damascus, and he was regarded as like a celebrity. He was he his book was like banned from so many places because it was very erotic, very sexual, and um, it was like everyone would read it as like a like a like a political pamphlet that came out like every like it was like this like thing that everyone was looking forward to. Like it was this. It's, poetry was like the mouthpiece of that generation for a long time and yeah. he would use it in a political way and to talk about like i don't know i, I think poetry now is not what it was back then and because the time it's, is so different but you no know, it's it's i believe you it's, they were celebrities yeah 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 and so like when when i talk about poets in this episode think about like a very high level pop star mm-hmm. when you're thinking about like the way people 
treat these guys. So he's he starts reaching out to the most famous poets in Italy with his work, and they love it. Um, and one of them who is particularly taken is a fellow named Nencioni, who's one of the biggest poets in Italy at the time. Um, and Nencioni takes him under his wing and starts like tutoring him, and he introduces him to a book by a guy named Thomas Carlyle. Uh, the book is On Heroes, and it's basically the thesis statement of the great man theory of history, that like single exceptional individuals are the ones who move history, not economic forces or like the actions of like mass groups of people, um, like in, exceptional individuals are what make history. And Gabrielle is absolutely taken with this theory um, and is, of course, convinced that he is supposed to be one of those great men. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a very early age, he was not just it was not just enough. He's not just one of these people who like wants to make a living with poetry or like just has to express something. The thought of being anything but like the very best poet writing in Italy is like hateful to him. Mm-hmm. So early in their relationship, he sends Nencioni a book of his poetry with a letter asking if his work is just charming or pleasing. Um, because if that's the case, he was going to give up writing immediately. Um, he said that little artists and little poets were abhorrent to him um, and asks, can I cover myself in glory? Um, so, like, again, he can't stand the thought of just being a, a good poet. Like, that's not enough for this guy. He's got to be the best. Okay. Um By age 18, Gabrielle had published three books of poetry. One was dedicated to his recently deceased grandmother. Uh, The other was a second edition of his first book, Primovera, with 43 new poems and revisions to his old work. His father paid the publishing costs for all these books, but D'Annunzio took responsibility for picking the font, the paper, the printer, and in setting up distribution deals with bookstores. Both D'Annunzios had a hand in promoting the work, and the differing ways they went about it say a lot about their personalities. Francisco Paolo, like a normal person, threw a big banquet party in the middle of town to drum up interest in the book. Gabrielle, being a narcissistic maniac, sent an anonymous letter to the editor of a poetry magazine in Florence, lamenting that Gabrielle D'Annunzio, the young poet already noted in the Republic of Letters, in his words, had died after falling off of a horse. What? (laughs) So he sends a letter to like a big poetry critic and claims that like, hey, this guy Gabrielle who wrote this book, he's dead now. Um, Holy shit! (laughs) Well, he does this because guys like Shelley and Byron, poets who died very young after publishing, you know, a, a yeah. handful of books, were like the biggest poets in Europe at the time. They had these huge cults of fans because they died young, mm-hmm. um, and so he knows that, like, if the like if it's just the story of like a young poet who's pretty good and has published a new book of poetry, like he'll, he'll sell some copies, people will talk about it, but it's not going to be a huge deal. But if he's a a, a great poet who dies tragically young. That's a huge deal. Um, wow. And it gets treated that way by the editor. Like a bunch of magazines start writing articles about this this dead young poet. They like call him things like the last born of the muses. Like he, he suddenly, shit. like the fact that he's believed to have died young elevates his work instantly in Italy. And he develops this huge culty fan base. And eventually, Gabriel corrects the error and basically plays it off as if, oh, this must have been, someone must have just gotten their wires crossed and, like, mm-hmm. sent you incorrect information. And, you know, it's the 1880s. Like, honestly, honestly, happens. I respect yeah. this. This is yes, genius level. This hustle. is genius level uh, yeah. influencer, like, like I don't know. That's one way to get a following back in the day. There it's, was no Instagram. You, you couldn't just, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, you fake your death. Yeah. Yeah, he fakes his death, 
he and then and it it turns what would have been kind of a modestly successful book of poems into a national news story. So as he turns eighteen, Gabriel Denunzio is already famous um, and already like very well regarded. Mm-hmm. And of course, he was already fucking. Um, as a young teen, his teachers had noticed that on walks through town, Gabriel constantly stared at young women. At age fourteen, he spent a few days in Florence with a family friend and wound up taking that guy's seventeen-year-old daughter to the Museum of Archaeology and making out with her in public. Uh, Shortly thereafter, on a school trip to another town, he pawned his grandfather's gold watch to pay for a hooker so he could lose his virginity. Okay. Yeah, he is. He is just dives right into fucking. You cannot stop this guy from fucking, which gets exactly as rapey as as that sentence should make it seem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the summer after he was finally allowed to go back to Pescara, uh, at age 18, he fl- or at age 16, sorry, uh, he flirted constantly with every woman in town. He found himself particularly enamored with a young peasant girl. She, unfortunately, was not enamored with him, so he hunted her down, chased her into a vineyard, shoved her to the ground, and raped her. Gabrielle was quite proud of this and wrote about it openly. He had a lifelong obsession with raping poor women, uh, particularly servant girls. Um, And it's actually hard to tell how often he did it because the act was such a fetish for him that he also fantasized about it regularly. Okay, my mouth is is wide the fuck open. I am... Because when you read read that poetry verse, like, before the break, where she was, like, writhing and whatever, I was like... In my my brain, I was like, that sounds rapey. And this makes so much sense in the worst way. I am disgusted that i agree with some of the points that you made earlier he's a very rapey guy oh that is a big part of his personality oh god i mean we're talking about the guy who invented fascism but but that's the thing you can be a ladies man and not be rapey like that's absolutely a rapey ladies man is the the worst kind of ladies man well in the Oh, God. There's a lot of class issues wrapped up in this because Mm -hmm. he doesn't, at least I don't, I'm not aware of him. I don't think he raped upper class women, wealthy women, famous women. And he had, would have, he had hundreds of affairs with the most famous women of the era and was considered to be a very, uh, a very great, like, romancer. Mm -hmm. Um, His particular fetish was in raping poor women. That um, is like, that is just appalling. I mean, not really. It's not appalling. It's just disgusting. Um, Yes. Wow. It's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. Because he's regarded as this womanizer, a seducer, and also this rape fantasy of poor people is just regarded as a fetish because he has all these other qualities. Well, in the well, but the thing is, though, it's a little more complicated than that. Not that it's morally complicated. It's horrible. But at the time, number one, most men who he would have talked about that, he wouldn't have hide the fact that mm. he was forcing himself on these poor women. And they wouldn't have really thought it was bad. Like, yeah. that's kind of, like, it's a it's a rapey time and place. Yeah, okay, um, fair enough. Yeah, Italy in this period. And, like, not just Italy, obviously, like, everywhere in the world. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I mean, um, you rape and pillage. That was, like, how you were yeah. fucking taught to like, show yourself as a man. It's fine. Yeah. We're not all the way past that now, obviously. No, um, no. So it was worse back then. And he would not have, this was not, like, a dark secret of his, is mm-hmm. the point. Like, this is a thing that he was like, yeah, I'm a ladies' man. I romance these women. I force myself on these women. That's just what a ladies' man do. Like, right, that's, yeah. that's the attitude with which I'm, I'm, he presents himself I'm for himself all the, the classes, world. even if they don't want me yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of especially if they don't want me to, actually. Yeah. Oh, 
At age 18, Gabrielle met Giselda, uh, the daughter of a schoolmaster in Florence. When he first met her, she was sobbing because she'd just seen the corpse of a little girl who'd frozen to death. This really turned Gabrielle on. They started dating and fucking. In his early letters to her, he would write about how much the sight of her tears turned him on. I want to make those tears fall again. Um, Lucy Hughes Hallett writes, quote, He luxuriated in the idea of her unhappiness. He even told her how much he would like to see her corpse. He loved it that she was deathly pale, like the Blessed Damozel, the dead girl of Rossetti's famous poem and painting, but he would have preferred her even paler. He told her that he would go around all the florists in the city, fill a carriage with assorted flowers, to come and bury her beneath them. Yes, to bury you. I want to make you die, he wrote to Tito Zucconi, not, as one might expect, promising to cherish and protect Tito's daughter, but announced I and Elda cannot live long. Both he and Giselda were, so far as we know, in perfectly good health. Yet Denunzio wrote, Our cold bodies will fall to the earth to feed the flowers, and we will be swept away, unconscious atoms, and the irresistible currents of the universal force. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want you even paler. I want you dead. Um, yeah, some red flags, huh? <laughs> well, okay. Unfortunately, I, I dated someone that told me he thought it was attractive when I was when I cried and I think like it's such a weird thing to say to someone yeah. like to be like I think girls are hot when they cry or like I'm turned on by girls crying um there's an element of some like I mean I guess there is a beauty to, to tears I'm fucked up I don't know I think like it's complicated like you're not a bad person if like obviously you're but, not a bad okay, person sorry I don't want to get into this I, I have been like, ghosting my yeah. therapist I don't want to use you as a therapist but um I He's also a necrophiliac then? Like, he's also into, like, deadness? You know, I don't know. I wouldn't say that, because I don't think that's... I think it's more that the art of... He's very much into classical and medieval art, and that sort of art, there's, like, this death obsession, because death mm-hmm. was such a part of the Middle Ages, and there's a lot of paintings and poems and works of about, like, focused around dead women. Yeah. Um, like, fucking Dante is is obsessed with this dead chick. Um, then he only met twice. Like, it's... It's a thing, and so it, it like now if somebody's like fantasy, yeah, I would say yeah, that that's probably what that dude's mm-hmm. into. But um, but at the time it was probably just way, romanticizing this this idea yeah. of 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 I don't know losing your life, romantic losing, yeah. death. Yeah. yeah, like there's just it's there's so much culturally wrapped up in it that like you really honestly can't compare it to anything today because mm-hmm. like we don't have those same sort of they're not nearly as powerful as they they, right. they were then. Wow. Um, now, you know what won't fantasize about your dead body? That's a bad way to lead into ads. Um, <laughs> an ad break. You'll never get raped by an ad break. Oh, God. Yeah. You know what won't molest peasant girls in a field? Jesus. Oh, I hope, boy. I hope the ad that comes up is like, I don't know, fucking, what do you get sponsored a, by? Like dog an food? An ad for D- D- Gabriel Denuncio. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. Okay, let's just oh, go to, go to products. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. 
The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. We're back. I mean, the Over first the ad break started with me <laughs> being a bigoted racist against Mario, or yep. like realizing that Mario is tainted forever. And the next one lead it up to me. Just, I'm sad. <laughs> I'm sad. Yeah, that's that's the denunzio effect. <laughs> okay, continue. I'm sorry. This is not about Over me. the two years that they were together, Gabriel wrote uh, Giselda 500 letters. Uh, they actually spent very little time in each other's company. Shortly after hooking up, he graduated and wound up traveling all around Italy, launching his career as a writer. He continued to write her dizzyingly passionate love letters, but ignored all of her pleading requests to visit her in Florence. Sometimes he would even pass by the city on journeys to other places without diverting himself to visit this woman he claimed to love. The fact that he wasn't all that into seeing her didn't stop him from giving her orders on what to to wear only black. Uh, but by 1883, he was tired of the relationship, and gradually his letters to her dwindled off into nothing. Gabrielle was never able to actually break off things with anyone. He just sort of ghosted them after spending months and even years writing tens of thousands of passionate odes to their bodies. This would prove to be a lifelong habit for the poet and writer. By his own count, Gabrielle bedded around a thousand women in his lifetime, and this is probably not far from accurate. Damn. He developed a reputation for being not just a great seducer of women, but for abandoning them and breaking their heart. His lovers would repeatedly attempt suicide, and a number of them probably succeeded. One of the reasons I really love Lucy Hughes Hallett's biography of Gabrielle um, is that she she's a woman, and she brings a woman's perspective to the way this, this guy dealt with his relationships. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm very interested in the way she writes about him, because she's very... 
detailed and thorough um, and clearly is an appreciator of his work, but is also utterly unsparing in sort of analyzing this him as a human being. She writes at one point, quote, The more unhappy a woman was, the more interesting to him she became. The more he tantalized Elda with promised visits which were repeatedly deferred, the more adorable her image seemed to him. You must be sad, immensely sad, my poor angel, he wrote. You will be thinking of me with desperate desire. The idea of her disappointment, denied his savage kisses, was one he liked to dwell on. Seeing her so seldom, she was really in no position to report on how pale and wan Elda really was. But he addressed her in a rapture of sadistic pity as, My pallid Ophelia my poor betrayed virgin so he's like into ignoring and he's just and a, mistreating he's an emotional this girl. M- manipulator like and he's a fundamentally abusive person he's a very yeah. abusive uh, like emotionally abusive person uh and w- ghosting someone and like there's a there's a term called love bombing where you're like showering yeah. someone with all this affection and everything and then you're just like gone and it's a huge form of emotional manipulation because you make them addicted to you because every time and it's like scientifically proven that whenever this person reaches out again your cortisol goes up and your cortisol is like your stress hormone and it's like literally the same way an addict reacts to an addiction so he's literally yeah. making all these women addicted to him and it's conniving and disgustingly brilliant because that's what a really good emotional abuser does um oh, it's f- but it's one of the things that's really hard about thinking like i most of at this point in my life just because of the way my career and my travel has gone like most of my relationships have have wound up being long distance for some particular point mm-hmm. and that's like a really that's one of the things that's like really tough about them is there is this like addictive sort of like nature to the relationship where you're apart and then like you're together and you get this like massive oxytocin release. And then like, like it's hard not to, I don't know, like it's one of those things that I always wonder about, like, because it's, it's, it's just, it's difficult to do that and not like fuck it up and not hurt the other person or, or get hurt yourself. Like both of those things happen. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess they're hard. Um, yeah, well, because when like when the relationship hard, is but... established as this like, I don't know, like yeah. it's 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 hard to describe it as anything but an addiction because there's like this huge, overwhelming release of happiness and everything when you're together, and then you're not, and then yeah. especially if there's someone that's constantly pulling the rug from under you or pulling away constantly, that only feeds the addiction for the other person. So in this case in particular, I think I mean like in the the my. The relationship that I've kind of like the closest thing I've had to a real relationship was long distance. So I could kind of relate to what you're experiencing as far as like yeah. when you're apart, it's like you're just waiting to be with them again and you're waiting for that like basically a hit. And then yeah. as soon as you get it, you're good. Even if they're just like replying to a message or whatever, it's like you're constantly needing that um, like streamline of like, or like I don't know. Um, but in, in his case, he's it's a one side addiction. He's completely fine. I don't think he yeah, ever means it, anything he writes. No. Yeah. He he is not at all emotionally engaged, which is part of what makes it abusive, right? If you've got two people and you're both dealing with that thing and you're yeah. both emotionally into each other, that's not abusive. But if you, and number one, he also doesn't, in no way does this need to be a long distance relationship. He is very well off mm-hmm. um, and successful from an early age. And absolutely could at least visit her mm-hmm. regularly. Like there's times where he's like an hour away and he just doesn't give a yeah. fuck. Like, like, yeah. like he's, it, 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 it's. He probably, it, he, he, honestly, he probably gets turned on with having this kind of power. Yes. This, he, yeah, he, exactly. he knows he has power over these women and he knows that he, his emotional abuse has made them addicted to him and his presence, even if like, he's not there. 
And that probably turns him on more than any type of sex, in my opinion. Like, he's absolutely sitting there jacking off as he writes about how sad he thinks he is. Like, that's that's what he's into here. And And that's why he's a sociopath, because you're just, yeah, wow. In 1921, when Gabrielle was very famous and renowned not just in Italy, but all across Europe, Giselda wrote him and asked for permission to sell the letters that he'd sent her. She needed the money to give to her son so he could get married. Gabrielle refused her this and instead asked her to hand over the letters to his lawyer. So, like, he just doesn't doesn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Like, he just stops writing this woman, like, and it completely cuts her off without even, like, talking to her about wow. it. Wow. Just one day, he, we're just done. Like, mm-hmm. and he doesn't even tell her we're done. She just stops getting letters and never hears from him again. So, (sighs) like most great men in history, Gabriel treated the women and indeed the men in his life like trash, Uh, but this did nothing to halt the meteoric growth of his career. He went to Rome where he studied literature, published more poems, and started writing books. In 1882, he wrote The Innocent, a book about a dandy and fuck-hungry man named Tullio Hermil who cheats constantly on his saintly wife until she cheats on him and finally gets pregnant. In 1889, he published Il Piacere, considered the manifesto of Italian decadentismo, which is more or less what it sounds like. Um, And I'm going to read you two paragraphs from Wikipedia's summary of this book. Okay. Gerard, an aristocrat, is in mourning over the death of his mistress, Leonora. He listens to tape recordings of them having sex and records his recollections of the day he met Leonora for the first time at the Carnival of Venice many years ago, on a day he felt sexually adventurous. In a flashback, we see him meet her on the street, introducing himself as Giacomo Casanova. After chasing her through the city, he finds her waiting for him behind a column in a passageway, where he lifts her dress and has sex with her. Later that day in an opium den, after having a smoke, they are initiated by Hanani in the cosmic secrets of pleasure and join in a threesome with her. Back in the present, Gerard and Fiorella dress Leonora's naked body for her funeral. When Ursula and Edmund, Leonora's children from another man, arrive for the funeral, Gerard, who has not seen either of them for ten years, at first mistakes Ursula for Leonora. Gerard is now legal guardian to both until they come of age. In a sudden fit, Edmund cries out that his mother was only a whore and suffers an epileptic attack. He is calmed down by his sister breastfeeding him like their mother did. Later, it is Fiorella who repeatedly breastfeeds him and with whom he has his first sex. That's just two paragraphs. It goes on. Like, that. that's the kind of books this guy writes. Like, they're the smuttiest smut to ever. I mean, I'm still not over the phrase fuck hungry that you used maybe five minutes ago. Um, he is very fuck hungry writing. Damn. Fundamentally fuck hungry is, is Gabrielle uh, Denunzio. That is, that is twisted. Yeah, but they're wildly successful. Like, I mean, because peop- because it's it's uh, uh, what's the word? It's yeah. pushing that. They're the button, horniest you know? books it's... ever, and everyone's horny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone's fuck hungry when you want it. When you when we're honest, everyone's fuck hungry. Yeah. Everybody's fuck hungry, and Gabrielle is just leaning into it. Like, you guys want horny books? I'll write the horniest fucking books anyone's ever Damn. written. Yeah, people are I'll sucking each other's milk and too, fucking each other. <laughs> Fuck it. Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, well. it's just like the most depraved, decadent shit he can mm-hmm. think of. Um, yeah, but for but for his for, for his legion of followers, they're probably like this is for, like from his real experience. Like he probably did all this stuff because he's like this amazing womanizer. I mean, he may he probably did a lot of this stuff to be yeah. honest. Like, yeah, yeah, he was. Was he, he didn't have a lot of boundaries? Can I ask? Like, was he a good looking guy? I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna show you his picture at the How end of this episode, Shireen. Oh my god! Um, we'll talk about that. Um, he was not considered good looking, though. 
Um, most of Gabrielle's protagonists were aristocrats, though he himself was not. Uh, it's notable that his only marriage was to Maria de Galici, mm. uh, a duchess, and probably because marrying her technically made him an aristocrat too. He had three children with her and Christ knows how many with other random lovers. He never wow. took care of any of these kids. And I'm going to quote from the New York Times. Wildly generous, he bestowed upon them custom-made gifts by Bucaleri and famous guys uh, with flamboyant nicknames that bring him that bring to mind a pantheon of Olympic goddesses Basilisa Nike Barbarella and of course Corre the outrageous Marchesa Casati um, yeah I don't know who any of these people are but he's like he, he, he's always got these loving nicknames that are like really like 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 out of this world flamboyant and he gives he spends thousands of 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 dollars essentially on fancy gifts for whoever he's fucking before he abandons them it's love bombing. Um, now, it's love bombing. Yeah. Yeah. Denunzio was wildly successful and made fortunes from his writing, but he spent those fortunes even faster than he could accumulate them. I found a write-up on his life on The Rake, uh, a fashion and style-focused magazine, um, that makes it clear just how he managed this. Quote, He could shop until he didn't drop, endless trips to the tailor, thousands of books, and he once even acquired 22 dogs and 8 horses, all in one purchase. When he stayed in hotels, he always traveled with his own sheets. I am, as he once explained with characteristic self-assuredness, a better decorator and upholsterer than I am a poet or novelist. Indeed, at the turn of the century, when his marriage into aristocracy, along with his journalism and plays, afforded him considerable wealth, he habitually lived in rented furnished houses that, at great expense, he immediately refurbished in extravagant fashion, or, as he put it, in a style gorgeous enough to be worthy of a Renaissance lord, which involved filling his properties with mock 16th century furniture of his own design. He's that guy. I mean, I, th- I think that's really funny that he's like, I'm an even better upholsterer and decorator than I am a poet. Yeah. Like, you think I'm good at this? Well, God, am yeah. I, I'm, not good, I'm not bad at anything, basically. God. Yes. The other people in Gabriel's life were more distractions to him than real human beings. At one point, when he already had eight horses, he spent the money given to him specifically to feed his kids on buying a new horse. By 1893, he was 30 years old and living in Naples to avoid his creditors because he was just in huge debt all the time. He'd long since abandoned his wife and all three children, as well as Elvira Fraternali, a woman he lived with and loved for eight years. He broke up with her to move in with a Sicilian princess. He was actually charged with adultery for this and almost went to jail for fucking this princess. Wow, he can go to jail novel- for fucking. If anyone should go to jail for fucking, it's him. Yeah, yes. If anyone should, it, I, I'm not normally, as long as there's consent. Well, actually, there. I mean, he, he should have gone no, to jail. No, if for anyone should too. go to jail for any kind of fucking, it's him. Yeah, it's him. When writing novels and poetry wasn't enough to cover his debts, D'Annunzio wrote for tabloids and gossip rags. He used his media connections to do things like tip off gossip journalists about when and where he would publicly be breaking up with one of his lovers. He started telling fanciful lies that he'd been born aboard a boat, that he had a glass eye, that he had two bottom ribs removed so he could suck his own dick. Yes, Gabriel D'Annunzio is the origin of that. <laughs> is he really? Yeah, that yeah, is, that's where that's that that's the crazy. first time I, I think we come across it. Yeah. He is. A shithead, but he did start so many things. Maybe the first poster. Oh, you maybe don't even the first know all fucking, he started. Oh my god, he's he, wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, all he's definitely of the belief of like any press is good press. So yes, damn, that's just. And his life kind of proves that that's true. Um, yeah. There's actually I found a couple of articles comparing him to Donald Trump, and while he's a much more talented person than Trump, mm-hmm. um, and did succeed on his own merits, um, there that's not completely 
ludicrous, as we'll get to. Like, there's some, there's actually some comparisons between the two men. Now, Gabrielle's maxim was, one must make one's life as one makes a work of art. Uh, as the rake notes, he was, quote, a diehard disciple of Baldessare Castiglione, the author of a 16th century book, The Book of the Courtier, in which the writer posited what he referred to as the universal rule in all human affairs. Sprezzatura, uh, a facade of nonchalance that concealed the artistry required to pull off challenges with aplomb, regarded even at the time as both romantic and deceptive in almost equal measure. D'Annunzio clearly lived out Castiglione's doctrine, which was described disparagingly by Henry James as beauty at any price, beauty appealing alike to the sense and the mind. Hmm. So... You would not, however, mistake Gabriel D'Annunzio for beautiful. By age 30, he was completely bald. He was short. <laughs> he was... He was, to his credit, very physically fit and muscular, but his teeth were disgusting, his breath was horrible, and his voice was high-pitched and considered weird by all who heard it. Leanne de Puy, a famous Parisian courtesan, uh, met him once on a visit to Florence. Here's how she described him. There before me was a frightful gnome with red-rimmed eyes and no eyelashes, no hair, green, greenish teeth, bad breath, the manners of a mountebank, and the reputation, nevertheless, for being a ladies' man. You just described like a goblin, like a gremlin. Yeah. <laughs> this He's is a the fuck guy. goblin, though. This is the guy. <laughs> this is the guy that no one can't bone, except for the women he sexually. How? Now, oh, I don't know. My I, 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 you, God, I am livid. I don't know. I, I don't an, know why I'm so much more angrier than I would be if he was good looking, but I am. I'm. I'm so angry. Yeah. Well, it's. It's. It's because in my brain I rationalize like. If you're a ladies' man and you're good-looking, you can get away with it. Like, you can get away with so much shit behavior if you're a good-looking person. Man or woman or anything. If you're good-looking, yeah. you get away with shit. It's, like, scientifically proven. You have an easier life. Whatever. Yep. But if you... Like, after, you're, you're a piece of shit and you, like, are repulsive by this description? Like, Jesus. It's, a, it's remarkable. Um, and I his don't really understand it. and his breath smelled? Why would you ever be... Uh, like, I mean, to be honest, Shireen, a big part of it just you have to understand. Like, he's he's a great poet. Like, that's probably a, a lot of why is he's like he's so you this can be kind like a of shithead, famous like, that we almost can't. Like, maybe in this context, we almost of the can't world, grasp it. It's like you can be like a really talented yeah. musician, right? But yeah, you're maybe like you know, gross. <laughs> it's like you hear stories about like some famous rock stars who like just didn't shower and were like these nasty mm -hmm. like drug addicts but like everybody because like their music was really good and the, there's just like something about that that can overcome an odious yeah. other aspects of your personality you know i will say i will way... say talent and ambition are maybe ambition in my opinion is probably the most attractive yeah. quality but i just can't get over all the other things yeah. that description is I mean, a repulsive description of a human being like that is i i, I would say sorry i, I no I i'm you. i'm just mad go ahead <laughs> i mean it, I, I would say you have to remember one, one thing that kind of helps me is think like look at pictures of like john lennon with his shirt off and remember that there was a time when everyone in the everyone in the world basically wanted to fuck john lennon mm -hmm. um and like just take a look at that guy shirtless like Hard to get your head around it, but like it's because of it, the 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 artistic, not just how his music on its own, but also the cultural like like platform he stood on yeah. was so elevated. You, we that, we like, revere these artists; they're regarded yeah. as these really yeah. artistic, beautiful souls. Not maybe not beautiful in the in Gabrielle's case, definitely but like, not a beautiful but, but soul more, in this case. He's revered or in John for Lennon's being case. This... He was abusive. Yeah, yeah. Wait, are you going to show now, me a photo? 
Oh yeah, in a little okay, bit. Okay, okay, yeah. fine. My <laughs> so <laughs> I'm so excited. Despite his looks, Gabrielle managed to sleep with many of the most beautiful women in Europe, and the vast majority of the sex was consensual. His habitual rape seemed to be mostly of poorer women. His housekeeper was required to have sex with him three times a day, whether she wanted to or not. Gabriel kept his homes bizarrely warm at tropical temperatures so he could wear only a light, thin kimono-style robe with the special hole in the fabric for his dick. Oh, my He had custom God. shoes shaped like penises. Oh, you almost missed the penis Wait, shoes. Wait, shoes that are shaped like penises? <laughs> this gets more absurd by the <laughs> fucking second. Are you shitting me? I, I, you know what? Maybe I haven't emphasized enough. He's Italian. <sighs> Does that explain the penis shoes? I'm sorry. Do you have penis yeah. shoes? Jesus. Of course. Oh, okay. Well, when you when you're I Italian at age 18, you get your penis shoes. That's just a part of being Italian. I the kimono the, 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 the whole, word Italy the penis means shoes. an ancient Etruscan like land clown. of penis shoes. Wow. Yeah, he he does a little bit. <sighs> Now, Gabriel was above all else a genius at brand management. He knew how to make Gabriel D'Annunzio into a star and to keep himself in the headlines. It was crucial to him that people believe him capable of literally anything. And so, in pursuit of that end, he ran for the Italian parliament in 1897 as an independent. He called himself the candidate for beauty and ran on a platform of pushing the politics of poetry. A big fan of Nietzsche, he declared that he was beyond right and left as I am beyond good and evil. In a way, Gabriel was kind of a prototype for Donald Trump, as well as Adolf Hitler, the first man to take his literary fame and pop culture cachet and turn it into political power. But when it came to actually staying in power, <laughs> D'Annunzio decided he really hated politics. He served one term and never held any kind of legitimate public office again. So he is like the first guy to take, like, he's just a famous guy for being famous, mostly. Yeah. Like, his, I mean, he's a great poet, but like he's, he's also really just famous for being a celebrity. Mm -hmm. And he turns that into political power. And that's really hasn't been done, you know, yeah. like in the way that he did it. Um, that is fascinating. Also, yeah. side note that I I'm still thinking about the kimono. I'm sorry. Um, the dick kimono, the cock, the cock <laughs> well, kimono. If the yeah. the temperatures are so high and that it keeps them this tropical level, uh, I just I watched Curb Your Enthusiasm. Curb Curb Your Enthusiasm. I watched that for yeah. the first time recently. All I'm all caught up. But there's this one episode with like uh, Leon, his roommate, fucking a uh, yoga teacher, a hot yoga teacher. Apparently. Uh, warmer temperatures, according to this episode, good for orgasms. So maybe he was onto something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Then again, I'm sorry, I'm a piece of shit. Um, but continue. And, well, and I will say, like, it, this was not like he was not like a one-sided sort of lover. Um, like he was, he was real into Conolingus and wrote about it. Uh, I mean, he, for pages sometimes. He says he mostly consensual. Be, right? It's most of his, yeah. most of the people that had mostly sex with consensual. him wanted to have sex with him. So yep. Um, it's yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, would you say that his use of, like, his brand of narcissistic politics, like, using his platform to become a politician, like, was that not what, like, Reagan did or, like, or, uh... Oh, you mean Reagan? Oh, Reagan. Sorry. Did I say... Yeah. I always mispronounce yeah, it because yeah. I say it how I think it's, it's pronounced. English yeah. is my second language. Leave me alone. Um, yeah, yeah, like, Reagan, like, na since D'Annunzio, a lot of people have done that. Um, But he's kind of, but like... But he was the first, he's, you think? He's the first, Yeah. Wow. Who's just really mostly famous for his fame, and then takes turns that into a political career. And this is not the end of his political career; just his end is an elected 
political leader. Oh. So keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we haven't even stepped foot into the fascism yet. Fascism. Jesus. Yet. We, there's no. so much about this guy. Um, oh, no. His debts were so outrageous by 1910 that Denunzio was forced to flee Italy for Paris, where he made a film, collaborated with some of the greatest artists of the day, and became friends with Proust. Uh, American whiskey heiress Natalie Barney wrote about this time, quote, He was the rage. A woman who had not slept with him made herself ridiculed. He even managed to bed Romaine Brooks, a famous lesbian artist who wound up painting his portrait. So, like, again, you really can't... It's hard to understand, like, the level of fame to where, like, an, an, a famous lesbian would be like, yeah, I, I gotta fuck him. Like, I just gotta Damn. see what, what's going on there. That's yeah. crazy. It's wild. As well, the years in Paris... massive? What? I don't, yes, actually, you'll see it. Um, not, oh, no. you, you'll get a, a sense for the size. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's in like a banana hammock in the picture I'm going to show you. And oh it's not God. small. I, I, I'll say that. Okay. Um, as the years in Paris ticked along, Gabriel found himself less and less enthralled with high society and more obsessed with the war clouds on the horizon. The actual start of World War I came as a surprise to most, but for years prior to the war, every observant person in Europe had been aware that some sort of violent conflict was very nearly, like, coming. Uh, artists who recognized this wound up in one of two camps. Many dreaded it and worked to do all they could to pull Europe back from the precipice. Gabriel, however, wound up in another camp. He saw it as his duty, as a lover of beauty, to push Europe into calamity. This seems insane to us now, and it is fucking crazy, but Denunzio was not alone in this. I'm going to read again from Lucy Hughes Howlett's biography. Quote, in the political rhetoric and poetry of the period, civilian existence is gray, dim, morally compromised, and physically grubby. The battlefield, by contrast, is bright, a glitter with weapons and flashing with joy. Above all, it is clean. When Britain declared war, Rupert Brooke proclaimed his gladness to leave the sick hearts that honor could not move, and half-men and their dirty songs and dreary. Like Denunzio, Brooke saw the war as a saving freshness into which he could plunge as swimmers into cleanness leaping. In Germany, Thomas Mann welcomed the conflict as a purging and a liberation. Let the storm come, cried the Hungarian Doso, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this guy's last name, and sweep out our salons. So like, there's this idea that like society is decadent. There's all these like young, like lazy, like like children of privilege sitting around drinking coffee and talking about politics. We need a war to kill a bunch of them and make the, the others into better people. Mm -hmm. Clean out these crowded cities. That's like a a sizable chunk of particularly like the intelligentsia in this period is right. into this idea. Yeah. They're all Thanos. Um, for... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah they they kind of are. Um, Gabriel D'Annunzio had become a fervent nationalist by this point, an adherent of a school of Italian thought that believed the new nation needed to reabsorb or conquer a number of states that were th currently its neighbors, but historically they believed Italian. This included much of what became Yugoslavia. But Gabriel didn't just see the coming war as a chance for Italy to gain lost territory. He saw it as a beautiful aesthetic endeavor in its own right. He believed that, quote, a great conflict of the races would purge society of its weak elements. As soon as the guns started pounding in 1914, while Gabriel was still living in France, he had a friend drive him as close to the front lines as he could possibly get. They wound up in a place called Reims, where German artillery had just destroyed an ancient and famous cathedral. Taking a valet and several suitcases full of clothing with him, of course, Gabriel wound up in the middle of the front line, watching artillery land just a few hundred meters ahead of him and seeing the corpses of men and animals rotting in the mud. He immediately grabbed souvenirs and started taking fastidious notes. He used these notes to write an article about the German vandalism of the Reims Cathedral. He hadn't actually watched the cathedral's destruction, but he had no problem lying and describing how, with his own eyes, he'd watched them burn it. 
Gabriel D'Annunzio despised Germans, considering them a barbaric and disgusting race. The goal of his article was to try and push his nation into joining with France and Great Britain in the war. Now, Italy had entered World War I as an ally of Germany, but no one in the country was particularly interested in actually entering the war on Germany's side. In fact, most of the country wanted to stay out of the war entirely. Given how World War I went, this was not a bad call. But Gabriel wanted Italy to go to war more than he'd ever wanted anything in his entire life, and he set at once to the task of dragging his country with him. As soon as he got back from Italy, in mid-1915, he began giving speeches. And I'm going to quote from an article in the New Republic about this. Quote, Italy was no longer a pension di familia, a museum, but a living nation, he declared in one interventionalist demagogic speech to general acclaim. The prospect of mass deaths thrilled him. Benedito Croce was repelled by his seeming to enjoy war, even to enjoy slaughter, as Hughes Hallett puts it. The politics of beauty was revealing itself as a politics of blood. Among his ardent supporters were Marinetti's futurists, who had recognized early on that, for all his fondness for classical art and medieval knickknacks, D'Annunzio was a fellow modern, a poet who rhapsodized over warship and steelworks, and who set a higher value on energy than he did on virtue. Genoa is where he first started haranguing the masses towards apocalypse. In his first four days there, he spoke seven times. The Italian government itself was torn over the question of war. The Queen Mother desired it dearly, but most of the elected leaders were firmly against the idea. They hated that D'Annunzio was ranting about the need to destroy Germany, while they carried on secret negotiations to try to plot the national course. Standing on balconies and shouting to increasingly large crowds, he urged his countrymen to pull out of the Triple Alliance and join the Entente with France, Britain, and Russia. He was not content just to attack Germany and make the case for war. Gabriel D'Annunzio made a habit of viciously attacking any politician who spoke out against his whims. He called them cowards and appeasers, the enemies within. He said the old order reeks and must be utterly destroyed. Sweep away all the filth, into the sewer with all that is vile. He called the current political order infected, diseased, corrupt, and defiled, and he said the only solution was cauterization. The corruption must be burned out. Gabriel called repeatedly for a holocaust to cleanse the body politic. Holocaust was, in fact, one of his most frequently used words, and in a positive sense. Foreign reporters who watched him were almost as enraptured as the crowds. Jean Carrère, a French reporter, wrote, Never have I seen an orator advance before the public with such composure. Standing on his improvised tribune, he was magnificently alone, of a marble pallor with two eyes of flame. And when Gabriel spoke to crowds, they didn't just listen, they acted. In May 1915, he made it to Rome and gave what would become one of his most infamous tirades. And I'm going to quote from Lucy Hughes Hallett again. He attacked the advocates of peace in vitriolic terms. The very air of Rome stank with their treachery. Those who still hung back from war were traitors, assassins of the patria, Italy's executioners. Giolitti, one of these politicians he hated, was strangling the nation with a Prussian rope. D'Annunzio was openly advocating violent attacks on the people's elected representatives. He called upon the Roman mob to take the law into their own hands. He urged his listeners to attack the appeasers who lick the boots on sweaty Prussian feet. He called for stonings and arson. His rhetoric was becoming ever more frenzied. I tell you, there is treason here in Rome. We are being sold like a herd of diseased cattle. He urged the people to hunt down anti-war deputies. Form squads. Squadro was one of the many words the fascists would pick up from him. Lie in wait. Seize them. Capture them. An observer reports that the applause when he paused was like a storm. When he resumed to denounce Giolitti in ever more vituperative terms, that diabolical old blubber-lipped hangman, the storm was transformed into a cyclone. D'Annunzio was high on his own eloquence. On the frenzy of the crowds, he flattered 
seared and inflamed and on the prospect of blood. 52 years old, he extolled the ruthless purity of youth. A poet whose life's work had been the threading together of obscure and beautiful words, he invaded against verbiage and called for action, swift, cruel if need be, and unambiguous. It is not the time for speaking, but for doing. He ended by leading the crowd in an anthem, beating time with his little ha uh, white hands while the people below bellowed out the refrain, let us join the cohort. We are ready to die. Italy has called. Damn. Yeah. Fame is terrifying. You're seeing uh, some of the fascism creep in here. Huh? Yeah. I mean, fame is terrifying. And he obviously used this like visceral um, quality of his writing into his speeches, obviously. Like, he, yeah. his, he's a good wordsmith. Like, that's been, yeah. that's been already proven. But like, Effective. it's so yeah. terrifying when someone is already so, I don't know, praised and lauded for being this amazing thinker he's obviously going to have a huge legion of people follow him what in anything he does even if yeah. it's to tell people to pick up a, a weapon and and yep. be violent and the fact that it's holocaust pretty... was a word that he used so much like that's so telling of like yeah. the kind of mentality he had even if he did despise germany like he definitely had similarities to hitler in that regard of like rallying oh, yeah. people together and being an amazing speech person like a speech giver um yeah. It's so yep. disturbing because I think that's that's a huge reason why fame and influence really freaks me out is because you have all yeah. these people follow you blindly, just like with Trump. Trump has the same thing. The people I hate the people in the rallies that I see. I hate the people behind Trump that are clapping at every dumb bullshit thing he says. I hate them more than I hate Trump, honestly, because they're just sheep. I don't know. You know, I... Actually, no. I don't, don't want to say think, sheep. Sorry. I, I, That's, I think I, what pe you people, see... People are intelligent, but they're also desperate to belong. And if someone is just, like, rallying people together for a, a cause that he thinks is, like, will better humanity, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think what you're getting at, and I think the reality both of why Denunzio was successful and why Trump is, is that... Everyone has this very deep understanding in our society, as they did then, that, like, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, things shouldn't be as fucked up and hard as they are. Like, this shouldn't be as messed up as it is. Someone is responsible. And if you are able to tell people who is responsible and convince them of who it is um, and then inveigh upon that group or that person with the kind of rage that everyone has in their heart, mm -hmm. um, whether or not it's directed, everyone has that anger in our society because we all know shit's fucked up. If you can convince people that you found the people who have fucked up the shit and then express the hatred that is in their hearts, you can get them to do anything. And that's all that matters. They don't care about laws. They don't care about precedent. They don't care about yeah. history. They don't even care about their own health to a certain extent. If you are able to convince them of the group that's responsible for their pain and express the hatred that's in their heart towards that group. And that's what Denunzio's good at. That's what Hitler's good at. That's what Trump's good at. You, you, you described what I was trying to articulate in yeah. a much better way. Uh, because that's what's terrifying is that what you said, you can get them to do anything. Because that's completely yeah. what's, what happens. And it works, it works on all of us. Yeah. It works. I mean, I, I mean to be honest, like I, the, the, a lot of the success of this podcast, um, which has been very successful and um, has, has done a lot for my career and has built up a fan base that's I'm very is, is very like loyal um and active is because what we focus on is is talking about like these are the assholes responsible for why shit is so fucked up right um like the most powerful thing in the world is 
is harnessing the anger that exists in all of us because of the damaged nature of our society and directing it. It's not an inherently harmful. Bernie Sanders' appeal is yeah. a lot in his ability to say, this is why shit's fucked up. This is who you should be angry at. We need to fix it. Now, he does it, in a, I would say, in a non-toxic way, in a productive way. It doesn't have to be a horrible thing yeah. because the anger is real. and ju- The anger that Trump's fans feel, the rage, they're not directing it in the right direction, but that rage is utterly earned in yeah. most cases. No, I completely um, agree. I think yeah. directing that anger is such a powerful tool to and being able to to harness that is a terrifying quality when you use it in the wrong way, which is what Hitler did, which is what uh, Denunzio is doing or, or did, and it's what and what I'm going yeah. to do in my new cult. So stay tuned. Um, very excited. We're going to buy a compound. It's going to be like Just that wild, the kids wild country run loose documentary. With machetes, battle oh, royale, yeah, machete- machetes know. as far as the eye can see. Yeah. It's going to be glorious. Now, um, on multiple occasions, crowds rioted after Denunzio's speeches. Several times, they attempted to break into the prime minister's home in order to murder him. The violence only encouraged Denunzio further, and he repeatedly urged good citizens to take vengeance on lying politicians. If blood flows, such blood will be as blessed as that in the trenches, he said, drawing a direct line between political murder and the national war effort. Shortly after that speech, some of his supporters stole a fire truck and used its ladder to try to break into the home of one of his political opponents. Lucy Hughes Hallett writes, He was fast developing a brilliantly manipulative oratorical technique. He allowed his public no break in his contrivances of their hysteria. He played on them with rhetorical tricks borrowed from religious liturgy or from classical drama. Hear me, he cried. Listen to me. Understand me. The crowd was urged to join him, howling out responses to insistent evivas. These were not speeches to be rationally appraised, but acts of collective self-hypnosis. Denunzio's work as a dramatist had frequently been grandiose in conception, spectacular in their staging, and appalling for the violence of their sentiments. But never before had he produced anything like the shows he put on that radiant May. The sheer rage he worked these crowds into eventually made any outcome but war basically impossible. Most of Denunzio's enemies fled the city. The prime minister stepped down. Historian Mark Thompson calls what Denunzio achieved a coup d'etat in all but name. The leader of the Socialist Party, Filippo Tirati, ruefully and accurately exclaimed, Let the bourgeoisie have its war. There will be no winners. Everyone will lose. Well... On May 23rd, 11 days after Gabriel D'Annunzio entered Rome, Italy declared war on Austria-Hungary. There is, of course, significant debate over whether or not Italy would have entered the war on this side without D'Annunzio. Historians will note that the Pact of London, which set out Italy's new alliance, had been under negotiation for a while by the time he arrived in Italy. But most historians agree he had at least a very significant impact in pushing his country into World War I. By the end of that war, more than 460,000 Italians would be dead. More than 955,000 would be wounded. The old order of Europe died, and Gabriel D'Annunzio helped to kill that too. His career, though, was just getting started. And now, Shireen, <sighs> Sophie, would you scroll to the bottom of the script I don't and show want Shireen? To. Oh no! Oh, but you have to. He, she has to see D'Annunzio. Mm. <laughs> this is the best. I just. I'm picture. so sorry, Shireen. I, I just can't believe. I just, I don't know. I uh, let's just get like a band aid. Let's rip it off. Let's see it. Come on. Okay, bro. Here, here he is. Here you go, Shushu. <laughs> I'm. She just grabbed my computer. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Are you shitting me? Okay, first of all, banana hammock. Uh, hilarious. Um, he does yes, look like yeah. he is packing heat, but. He is packing heat, yeah. But he and is, he's he's pretty stacked. He's pretty yoked. 
He's just skinny. What do you mean? Yeah, he's not he's yoked. He's not yoked. He's just tiny. He's he's got. Well, you got to admit, you got to you got to remember too. Like people didn't know how to build muscle then the way they do now. Like he's pretty. He's I mean, sculpted. yeah, he doesn't have fat so. on him. I'll give him that. But yeah. he's also like, if 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 anyone that's listening yeah. to this in the beginning was imagining this like attractive, womanizing, seducing, whatever, this is not the guy. But he did it. No. He, I mean, like a champion for short guys, unfortunately for for yeah. y'all. But uh, yeah, you already have Napoleon. What award do you want? I don't know. Um, Jesus, he's that's a hilarious photo, by the way. This photo is it's amazing. He's, he's completely it's amazing. naked, other than this banana thong, and <laughs> his arms are at his hips, posed for this photo his mustache is curled up didn't know he had a mustache by you, the way um yeah bald with a, a curled up mustache you gotta see the picture he's a clown he's yourself. just a he yeah. looks like if adam silver the nba commissioner and colonel sanders had a baby and that baby was a creep yeah i would i would <laughs> he's say the definition if you watch of creep if you look up creep if, that's what i imagine if you watch the um the tv show community he looks like Pierce's father um like he's that exact build and size he's just this like weird little bald he's a little man. he's he's Smeagol yeah he convinced his country he's, to enter the dumbest Schmeagol, war in history he humanized personified whatever yeah oh. he does look a lot like Schmeagol yeah yeah anyway yeah how how you feeling after I, part uh, one Shireen um <laughs> I, uh, I've learned a lot. I think we had a good, like, bonding time, you and I, to be honest. I feel yeah. like we just oh, therapized yeah. each other a bit in parts of mm-hmm. this episode, which I feel kind of, like, nice about. I think we're good friends now. Um, the Denunzio effect. Oh, God. Don't give him credit. Give him more You're credit. you his power, Shireen. I You're would like credit. Power. I would um, like credit for the friendship. Thank you, Sophie. You're I will welcome. give you the credit. I mean, this episode has convinced me, among other things, to buy a banana hammock. That seems like a good decision. This episode has convinced me, among other things, that you should not have children. But, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. If you, you would be a great dad, in all seriousness. Um, just don't give your children that seems machetes. Like, that seems like a long reach to make, Shireen. No, I'm, I'm, um, I've learned a lot. Uh, I can't wait to learn more and, uh, and um, really... Yeah. Uh, just the turn of this guy's life. What an eventful, awful way to leave the world he's not lazy you gotta say that for the man he accomplished a lot a very productive like is, back in the he, day we're we, not even i mean we have that saying now like yet. you have as many hours in the day as beyonce does back in the day yeah. you have as many hours in the day as 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 denunzio has you know what i mean what have you what country have you demolished today um yeah what what world order have you destroyed exactly what generation have you sent into machine gun nests Robert, yeah. do you think um, we can get a banana hammock sponsorship? That's just my only. Oh, I hope so. I want a banana hammock sponsorship, and I would love it if we could get if we could like get a war to sponsor us too. Like that would be really good. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like there's a lot of really good wars going on right now, and one of them should sponsor this podcast. I mean, Lord knows they have the money. So mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, Shireen, you want to plug your pluggables? Oh, yeah. I'm Shireen, and uh, I am uh, a co-host of a podcast called Ethnically Ambiguous. It's on the iHeartRadio network. It's ethnically, You should look it up. It's everywhere you find your podcast. I'm Shirohiro, S-H-E-E-R-O-H-E-R-O on Instagram, and Shirohiro666 on Twitter. And, uh, yeah. 
that's uh, about it. I have a poetry book if you guys want to like the poetry talk. It's on Amazon. Oh shit! Yeah. Well, I'm there you go. On my next one. But Read Shireen's poetry. It's really uh, depressing. her ego. <laughs> turn her into a monstrous sociopath who leads the world into a tremendous calamity. Honestly, um, I'm just waiting to sell out. So please, yeah. let's make this a reality. Oh, we all are. Just, we all are. I'm begging. I, I would love yeah. to sell out. So make, make it happen. And I, I'm Robert Evans. You can find me on Twitter at IWriteOKay. You can find this podcast on the internet at BehindTheBastards.com where you can find sources and this picture of Denunzio and his banana hammock. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at, at @bastardspod, uh, and you can find me uh, fully embracing the lessons of Gabriel Denunzio when I create my cult and uh, plunge the world into a new dark age. So, like, look forward to that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to be a real good time. Free machetes for all. Um, yeah, that's the episode. Have a good one, y'all. Bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Calm. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.